Sometimes the most memorable stories we carry with us from military service were just the product of the branch of service we were in or the deployment we were on and the crazy stuff that happens when people with a mission and a common cause live in close quarters. The Garrison Project Podcast tells those stories, your stories, and builds connections across generations of veterans. The Garrison Project, veterans connecting with veterans through the power of storytelling. And now your host, Dan Ettinger, co-founder of the Garrison Project. This is Dan Edinger with the Garrison Project Podcast, big episode number three. We are up to a grand total, because I just checked this a minute ago, we're up to a grand total of 21 downloads. Unfortunately, of course, several of those are me and other family members, but hey, our listenership will grow, I am sure. Sure to appreciate you taking the time to uh, to join us, have some, uh, some stuff to do today. We will see how this goes. I don't have a, uh, a dial-in guest. So I'm. what my plan is for today is to do a super quick interview uh, of myself because a lot of people that might listen in may have absolutely no idea uh, who I am. Uh, the, so so hope to introduce myself through just a, uh, a couple, a real quick run through of the uh, the career, what brought me here, what the heck we're doing, which, which I know we've covered in other times, but kind of what we're doing with the, uh, with the podcast and a quick story because that's the whole point of this, right? Uh, veterans connecting with veterans through storytelling. So I picked out a, uh, a goofy story from my military career that I thought I'd share. Have uh, have a couple tidbits and a couple notes here. As I mentioned, up to the big uh, number 21 of downloads for episode one and two. I've had some great feedback, some stuff I'm going to try and incorporate over time. Hopefully this gets to, uh, hopefully this gets to be the point where I'm good at uh, doing a podcast. And uh, besides the fact that we'll be doing good work, that we'll actually be entertained by the stuff that we talk about, here's some of the feedback that I got. And thanks to everybody who, who's written in. Stop meandering. I will, uh, I will attempt to do that. I'll try to stay focused, stay on task, especially when we have uh, guests come in and, uh, and appear via the dial-in. We'll try to stay on task, make it about the stories and, uh, and all that kind of good thing. Quit saying, uh, um, I think I just said, um, to set up saying, to stop saying, um, which might be a world record, but quit saying, um, and it's the funny part about that is I caught that myself and nobody else has said it, although I'm sure many people have thought it, but nobody else has said it. And in the last episode, I actually went through in the intro piece and through some of it where I could, wherever it was feasible and cut out the ums, wherever there was a spot where I could see in the audio that um was very uh, very clear i was just cutting it out and i probably took out about god only knows probably 30 of them uh, in the last i think it was about a half an hour or so worth of a, of a podcast that's that's entertaining right how about if i just stop saying um and i won't have to do that when we when we're talking about what we do since the intro talks and the outro talks about storytelling and all that i'll i'll spare you from repeating that over and over again and we can just stay focused on the on the interviews and the stories and whatnot so again i'll be doing a self-interview today talk a little bit about myself my background set up what the uh, second half of the podcast will be we'll do some some topics that i hope will be helpful but really the point is going to be and i just picked a few out of the off the top of my head a couple of topics that 
will hopefully set the stage for feedback from the audience as it grows on things that we can do uh, as a team to support ourselves. And uh, you'll see what I mean when we get to that point, but have a couple of tidbits and whatnot that, that I've picked up and, and other people have shared with me that I think are useful. We'll cover some of those and, and set up the, the next podcast. What I'm hoping will happen is the feedback will keep coming in. And when I provide a couple of topics here, a couple of them being around employment and those sorts of things, that'll spur some thought and conversation about stuff that you want me to bring, go out and get, give me an assignment, go, go find us, you know, this resource or go find us this sort of a resource. And I'll go ahead and get those and have, bring them on the podcast and, and share, and we can have a conversation. And I'm thinking once I actually get good at this, we can set up a, uh, a live feed where you can call in and, and ask questions live. So we'll see how that goes. As I've done these first couple of uh, episodes, I have a quasi scripted interview that I've been using and I'll try to use that same format for myself. So quick self interview. I won't bore you. A lot of, you, a lot of us know each other, but uh, some of us don't. So let's plan along and see where this goes. If I was in, a brand new guest on the podcast. I'd say something like, welcome to Garrison Project Podcast, Dan. Thanks for being with us. Before we get into your story about serving in the military, why don't you tell us a little about yourself and your family, where you live and what you do to keep busy. So my wife and I have been married for 28 years. We live in Cary, North Carolina, which is nestled up right next to uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. We've been here about eight years. I retired about eight years ago from up in the Pacific Northwest. We've been here ever since. Uh, bounced around a little bit. Uh, right now, I'm actually, strangely enough, tough time. I'm on the job market, looking uh, looking for a place to to land. After uh, last year, I tried to run my own business, and it didn't go too well. Uh, a ton ton and a half of lessons learned. Be glad to share those and all that. But uh, right now, I did a a quick little six month uh, gig with a local tech deployment company, and that was all good, great people, and all that kind of stuff. But that came to an end. So right now on the uh, on the job market, uh, hobbies, lifelong goal, catch a uh, tarpon on saltwater fly. If you don't know what a tarpon is, shame on you. It's a big nasty fish that lives in the ocean and uh, the the king of all fish to catch on uh, on saltwater fly. So that's my goal. And uh, to support that, I do a little fly fishing every now and again around here. Uh, hit the gym, belong to a uh, pretty cool gym that's just right down the road. So spend a fair amount of time down there working out. And uh, that is about it. So again, if I was doing an interview with somebody else other than me, I would say, excellent work, Dan. We really appreciate uh, appreciate you sharing that. Let's get uh, warmed up here uh, for the story you're going to share us about a story before that, the story about what you did in the military, uh, where you were at when you joined, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Tell us a little bit about your uh, military career. And I would say, heck yeah, let me give you a story about my military career. I spent 20 years in the, in the Navy and the submarine force. Uh, I joined in 1990, exactly two weeks after my wife and I got married. So we'd been married for a grand total of two weeks when I, when I left for boot camp. I enlisted, went to the nuclear power program as an enlisted machinist mate, did about six years, six and a half years of time enlisted. Uh, three of that was while I was actually at Auburn, I was I was awarded, uh, competed for, and was awarded a program where I got to go to school full-time on active duty. It was great. I uh, went to Auburn University, got a materials engineering degree that I've 
not even begun to put to use in my military or post-military career. After that, went to got commissioned, went to OCS in Pensacola. Great time there. Went to uh, through the submarine pipeline, through nuclear power pipeline as an officer, because you have to go through again uh, to see the officer side of things. Through the submarine school pipeline, I went to my first ship around 98, the James K. Polk. Fantastic stuff. It was a seal delivery ship, so it had dual dry dock shelters, went over to the Mediterranean, had a fantastic time. Split toured that because we decommissioned it over in Washington, uh, Washington State. You know, you you shut the uh, reactor down and they basically tear the thing apart because it was an old ship, about 30, 32, 33 years old when I got to it. And went over, back over to the East Coast to uh, Kings Bay, Georgia, which is the last exit going south on 95 uh, there before you get into Florida. And uh, went to the USS Pennsylvania, did three patrols on that. Went to, uh, on, I did went, did a short shore tour immediately after that is kind of the, the career path goes. Went and was the enlisted programs officer for Navy Recruiting District, Ohio. So I basically ran the enlisted side of recruiting for recruiting district for two years. Really cool stuff. 120 active duty Navy recruiters. So uh, after that, went back into the submarine uh, training pipeline to be a department head, went to the Dallas in Groton, Connecticut, really struggled on the Dallas, lots of stories around that, uh, struggled on Dallas, but did a fifth and sixth fleet deployment. So that's Mediterranean through the Mediterranean up into the, uh, Persian Gulf. I was there for six months, uh, doing some pretty cool stuff. So Suez Canal, uh, tough, tough navigating, all that kind of good stuff. And, uh, came back, Split toured off of that, ended up over on the West Coast again to the Henry M. Jackson. Did a shipyard tour there, took that out for sea trials. Went to an individual augmentee tour where I went over to Kuwait and did an army job uh, where I was basically doing VIP travel uh, from in Kuwait as people came in and out of the theater. Then went back to Bremerton, Washington. I was at the uh, a big training command and retired. There you go. So 20 years, four submarines bunch of cool stuff other than that and lots of moves you know wife and family getting dragged all across the country doing all doing all that kind of stuff the good sides and the bad sides all that next question as the point of this the point of the garrison project being stories that connect veterans across generations we want to hear a story about uh, something from your time in the military that means something to you so the story uh, I sort of thought I'd tell is about, it kind of takes place in, uh, in two parts. The first part is I was the, as I'd said in that quick history about my service, I was the, I was in charge of the enlisted side of recruiting for Navy Recruiting District, Ohio. A year or so into that tour, I heard about this program called the Hearst Senate Youth Foundation, uh, which happens up in DC where two, two kids from every state and two kids from DOD schools overseas are selected, uh, and it has to do with student government. So these kids would be like, you know, student body presidents or whatever. But they are uh, they're selected and sent to Washington for a week. And while they're in Washington, you see all this crazy stuff that I'll tell, tell you about here real quick. But also with that program, they select 17 military officers from all different services who go as chaperones, right? And you go a couple days beforehand 
you get settled in, you go see the, go see the sites so that you've already, you know, you aren't distracted by all the other stuff and you basically get assigned. I think I had six, six students assigned to me and I'm kind of their, you know, their, uh, their sea dad or their chaperone or whatever you want to call them. So I went to this thing and it was, it's insane. The, the, the place we saw just a quick like rundown. So we went to, went to department of defense, um, where, uh, Rumsfeld came and talked to us. So there's like uh, 110 kids and, or no, what was it? 104 kids and these, uh, the military officers and all that kind of stuff. And just Rumsfeld in a room talking to us, right. Uh, went to the Supreme court and the, the, the most ridiculous sort of vignette happens where we're all in this one room in the Supreme court, uh, complex there. And Sandra Day O'Connor comes in and she's talking to us about, current stuff and kind of her history and all that. And like the door starts to jiggle, like they have these huge, uh, must be 15 feet tall, these doors. Right. And the door like jiggles and messes, you know, like, uh, like somebody trying to get in or whatever. And it pops open and somebody's head sticks around the corner. And I can't remember the justice's name. It's the guy who always wore the bow tie, but he like peeks his head in and he sees Sandra Day O'Connor talking to these, this small room full of people. And he's like, oh, sorry, sorry, like a John Paul Stevens might have been. I can't remember what the guy's name was. Anyway, so he starts to go out, but Sandra Day O'Connor says, no, 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 come on in, come on in, like that. So he walks in. Now these two justices are standing in front of this whole group of people, and they start talking about these issues. And like one of them was a uh, a uh, marijuana, some issue about marijuana or something like that. So this is 02. You can probably go back and look at what their caseload was. But something was about uh, a marijuana case. And another one was about child seats, child safety seats or something like that. And so these two, and she was telling story. She, she said a couple of things about how she had to like keep track of everybody. She was like the, the school marm for the Supreme court or whatever. And I'm just sitting there going, this is the most surreal thing that I can even imagine. Right. I'm sitting here, you know, and it's two Supreme court justices are having this discussion with right in front of us went to uh, it's a Senate centric program. So we went to the Senate one night and all the, senators were there with the exception of just a couple and everybody got to you know schmooze and all that kind of stuff fantastic food the the sort of the pinnacle of the thing besides actually one of the days we just went and saw the tourist attractions and all that but on the one day we went to uh, the white house and did a uh, an event uh, with uh, president uh, george w bush right so this is like oh two right as um the uh, iraq stuff was spinning up whole story about that really really cool story i can tell sometime but anyway uh one of the events that we had was at state department and if you ever get a chance to go tour around there and you get i don't know if it takes special permission or whatever to get into it but the seventh floor i think it is of the state department building they have all of these like it's like this uh, reception room where they'll bring foreign heads of state and all this kind of stuff in there and it's just this unbelievable collection of americana uh the thing that just screams back out at me was a uh what's her name uh george washington uh her name's escaping me for something like george washington's wife's name was it mary mary whatever it was i sure her name's escaping me but anyway so her her china set is on the seventh floor of the state department building in this cabinet that covers a 20-foot wall right it's this it's the most incredible thing yeah mary i think mary washington anyway so, and it's like monogrammed, it's her China set and it's there in the state department building. 
and this huge thing and like Thomas Jefferson's desk, I guess he had a couple, but one of his desks is there and all this stuff that's incredible, right? So we go and we tour around this stuff and, you know, just kind of in awe and we're keeping track of each one of our, each one of us is keeping track of the kids we're assigned that are assigned to us and all that kind of thing. We have a dinner, pretty much every one of these events would have a very formal dinner of some sort. Uh, the food was incredible, of course, as you can imagine, but at the state department, Colin Powell, who was the secretary of state at the time was supposed to talk to us, but he was called out of the country. And, and the discussion was, well, who's going to stand in for uh, Colin Powell? And uh, the way they sat at us was we had these round tables and it was one of the military officers and six kids. And they weren't all of our assigned kids. It was just six kids that they put there. And then somebody from the state department who was kind of a big wig who could entertain while the dinner was happening. And then there would be a speaking thing, which was, again, it was supposed to be Colin Powell, but he was out of the country. So the point was, well, who is it going to be? So a gal sits down with us. Our, our dignitary was Colin Powell's secretary or whatever it was, you know, administrative assistant, executive assistant, but I'm sure that was executive assistant, right? So she sits down and we're, of course, wondering who's going to be the person who's going to stand in. And she lets us know that Richard Armitage is going to speak that day. And this guy, I think he was an undersecretary or something like that. But he had a lot of history. The connection to that time was that uh, it was, I think it's widely believed that he was supposed to be the person who outed Valerie Plame. You can look that up. You can Google how that all went down or whatever, but like the popular belief is he's the one who outed Valerie Plame. So he was going to be the one who's speaking. And we're just kind of shooting the breeze around the table, eating our uh, eating our, our food or whatever, getting ready for this discussion. And she brings up, and Lord knows how this comes up, but you know, she's asking these kids what kind of questions they can ask, making sure that they're encouraged to actually ask some questions. Don't just stand there blank with a blank stare, actually engage, right? And it comes up that... Uh, Richard Armitage, who I think was a Navy SEAL, that he works out all the time and he can bench press like 300 and whatever pounds, right? And uh, and one of the kids like, no, he can't bench press whatever, right? It's like this old guy. Uh, you know, Richard Armitage is an old guy at the time. He's like, no way, he's benching 300 pounds. And so uh, so we uh, we say, well, ask, right? You know, when he comes out, let's let's ask him if he's if he can what he can bench. And <laughs> And so this lady's like kneeling these kids on to ask that question. And uh, he, so he comes out after we're done eating, he comes out and he does his little speech or whatever. And he asks if there's any questions and the hand goes up and I'm like, no, 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 no. We're not going to ask if he can bench press some other pounds. I can't remember if he actually asked it or not, but uh, I remember I was with humor, kind of horrified that this kid was going to ask this question. It was all going to go wrong, but anyway, it was all her fault. She was the one who was kneeling the kid to do it. But he was big. He's a big, big dude at that time. Um, I don't know if he's still with us or whatever, man. He's a big dude. Now, fast forward to that individual augmentee that I was on to over to Kuwait. And I'm doing this most ridiculous job. I would have never even imagined where I'm doing, like I said, VIP travel. Every VIP. So this is like one star and above military wise, but one star equivalent and above civilian side would all go through my office. And it was like me and a couple of commission officers and a couple of NCOs ran this thing. And so everybody in the planet came through our office. Like 
they call them CODELs, congressional delegations. So it'd be two or three congressmen or senators at a time would come through every two, three, and four star, every one, two, and three, four star pretty much in the, in the country would come through. Um, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, uh, First Lady did a trip with uh, Laura Bush, um, did a presidential trip. You know, everybody, foreign heads of state, it was out of control. Uh, lots of these, just these ridiculous stories. Uh, Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff flying into Camp Buka and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. But so, um, so I'm maybe a couple months into this, into this tour that's just outrageous and going unbelievably well. And I'm reading the paper. I was always out, I was always able to go out to the Kuwait City Airport. Uh, one of the few people who could get on and off base pretty much at will because I was doing this, you know, travel thing. I go. I'm in the Kuwait City Airport or something. I pick up a, a paper. And Colin Powell's coming to town, right? And um, I read this thing, and I don't know why I even thought about it, but I brought it back to my office, and I talked to the chief of staff that I worked for. So it was like I worked up for a three-star as who was the senior U.S. military and country and pretty much had to do like weekly briefings and all this ridiculous stuff with this, with this three-star. But the person I had the most contact with was, was the chief of staff, who was an Army 06. I had this epiphany that I would try, I would reach out and see if I could get Colin Powell to come out and visit the troops. Cause that'd be really cool. Right. Colin Powell, former four-star uh, army guy, fly him out. And I let the chief of staff know, Hey, I'm going to try to give this shot at this and see if I can get him. He was actually came in country, uh, the Kuwait city or, uh, bank of Kuwait or something. I forget what the name of it is, but like the state run bank of Kuwait had brought him there to, to speak you know, and like some sort of paid speaking engagement. So the, I don't know if the, the chief of staff actually even acknowledged what I'd said or whatever, but I'm like, all right, I'm going to go for it. So I make some phone calls. I go through like the speaker's bureau that he's assigned to, you know, I'm just Googling stuff. Right. And I, somebody picks up the phone and I say, Hey, this is uh, blah, blah, blah. I give him the story that I'm wanting to connect with Colin Powell's staff, because I think it'd be an awesome opportunity to get him in there. I think he had transferred over to somebody and said, a lady picks up the phone and I give her the same, the same spiel. And she says, uh, yeah, right. She, she thought it was a great idea too, that he's going to be in country. It would only take a couple of hours to get him over there. Cause I could just have him fly into the, to the, uh, to the embassy, which is cool because he was secretary of state for a while. So they had a connection. So I could bring him to the, to the embassy, have him meet up all the people there and then fly him over to the army base, do our thing over here, and then get him back and have him out. And uh, she thought it was great. And we're sitting here talking, and something wherever the conversation went, I bring up I was like, "But are are you the person that we sat around and talked about Richard Armitage bench pressing three hundred pounds?" And it was her. It was Colin Powell's executive assistant that I had talked to some number of years earlier, and she remembered this goofy conversation about Richard Armitage bench pressing three hundred pounds, right? And so I don't know if that is what sealed the deal, but she went off and uh, like a day or two later, she calls me back and said, it's on, let's set up the, the itinerary. So I arranged Blackhawk helicopters to go into the embassy. I was in the, at the Kuwait embassy all, or the embassy there in Kuwait all the time because I didn't work with those guys and uh, uh, arranged to pick up Colin Powell and a bunch of suburbans, uh, armored suburbans from his hotel from the speaking engagement and take him to the embassy, have a little uh, uh, engagement there where he met the staff and all that kind of stuff. And met there's a 
Purge de Fer uh, there because they didn't have an, an ambassador at the time. So I uh, set all that good stuff up, had these helicopters sitting on standby, flew them over, worked with the chief of staff to set up an, an engagement on Arif John, which is the, the base that we were at. The All the command sergeant majors had to supply people and all this sort of thing, set up a stage, talked with his his executive assistant about, hey, in this event, I'm going to put some, like once he goes and does the handshake rope line thing, I'll put some music on. Tell me what kind of music he likes. And he, and he liked uh, Bob Seger. And I'm like, what do you think? Like maybe Like a Rock or something like that. So I burned a CD with Like a Rock. And that was like the outro music that he went down to. And all the stuff, man, it went off without a hitch. Uh, there were a couple of hiccups along the way, but nothing that, that he could see. Like we were flying in on the helicopters and I, I'm flying in and I think I might be in the, the one in the chopper ahead of him or something like that. And I don't see the vans, right? And I'm like trying to call somebody on my mobile phone, flying in on a helicopter, which is noisy as I'll get out. I'm trying to get a hold of the one guy who worked with me. You know, where are the vans? I think I'm texting him or whatever. And the vans like roll up right there as we get there. We get to actually do the event. It was it was nowhere near as many people, but it was a good time, right? He tells a, a couple stories, and maybe he's on stage for fifteen or twenty minutes. But he gets off, and we had made a rope line by setting up uh, these chairs and putting a ghillie net over top of it. And he gets he like he finishes up, and he's doing the rope line. And he decides he just wants to jump into the crowd. Colin Powell, he does. So he goes to jump over the uh, the rope line, which is this ghillie net over top of chairs and desks. And like, you know, half kill, almost half kills himself because they're all unsteady and stuff. He almost falls down there. And uh, some guy comes over and has him, uh, wants to have him sign his baseball cards because his dad back home has a baseball card shop or something like that. So he wants to get a Golden Pal baseball card. And boom, man, we got him up out of there, threw him on the helicopters, got him back to the embassy, drove him over to the thing. And that was that. And it was all because of Richard Armitage being able to bench press uh, 300 pounds. So there you go. Incredibly long story, but it was a good time. And that's, uh, you know, like I said, it was just on this ridiculous assignment that I got to do stuff I'd never, never believed I could do. So I hope the, uh, I hope the story was enjoyable. Um, as you've already heard a couple times on the, the couple of interviews that I've done, we wrap up our phone calls with, with asking a guest if they have any kind of uh, overall thoughts or, uh, impressions or things that they took away from the, uh, from the military, uh, from their time in the military service and things that stick with them, uh, to this day. So I guess my answer to that question would be that I am, uh, keenly aware that the, uh, the things I got to do and the fun I got to have and the places that I went and all of that would certainly have never happened had I not joined, uh, joined up in the Navy grew up in Northeastern Ohio and farm country and all that kind of stuff. So just really never even really dreamed of having the, the, the types of adventures and fun and seeing the places that I saw uh, when I was growing up, you know, until the time I was 18 and was out the door uh, with, with the Navy really wouldn't have imagined uh, seeing all that. So that's really maybe the, the thing I take away the most is that feeling of gratitude towards the opportunity that I was given and the uh, not just and not just the opportunity, I guess, for all the adventure and all that kind of stuff, but the opportunities to 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 raise and support a family, uh, you know, raise three kids in that environment. And I think that all probably chime in my, my two daughters, Danielle and Shannon and son Mason, 
would probably all say that it was a uh, interesting lifestyle, had its ups and downs and all that kind of stuff and the, the good side and bad side. But overall, I think we had a heck of a time and I would have definitely not had the, the opportunity to do that with any other career path that I would have set out on as an 18 year old. So that's probably the thing I take away the most is really a sense of, of gratefulness and a sense of pride and patriotism that I grew in, in 20 years of Navy service to the Navy that I wouldn't have gotten anywhere else. And with that, I will uh, conclude the interview portion uh, of this uh, podcast and we'll, uh, I'll take a, take a quick break here going forward in the future. We'll, See if we can scare up some sponsors for the podcast. Fit them in right about now. Uh, get some, get some, uh, some people involved in the podcast besides uh, just myself and our guests. Hopefully that'll work out. But uh, we'll take a quick break. Be right back with, with the second half of the show. Thanks a bunch. Everybody back from that uh, extended commercial break. Appreciate everybody sticking with me uh, through the podcast here. I don't want to spend too much time on this this uh, second piece here because we've already started rubbing up against the uh, the half hour or so that I want to shoot for uh, for these podcasts. I don't want to take up too much time. Hopefully, make them perfect for you. I drive into work, but I want to put out some some more thoughts here and continue building the concept of what we're going to be doing with uh, the Garrison Project. Not to touch on all the stuff I've already talked about that isn't quite ready to go, uh, the connection, the the platform, and the connections and the referrals and all that kind of good stuff, but really more kind of the blocking blocking and tackling stuff that we can do as a community. The so what what do I mean by that? There are a few areas that are obvious, easy places to get wins for the transitioning military and the veteran community. Uh, you throw out the easy ones there, the employment space, right? There's a there's a ton of resources out there to help transitioning military people land jobs, but we can do that. That's an easy one. Uh, but I want to expand the scope a little bit beyond that. And the way that I want to expand that scope is to offer up this platform to groups or people or interested parties or whatever the case, people who have resources who want to get the word out about those resources and, and talk to the, to the community that we build. Employment's easy stuff, and, and I'll say a few words here in a second about that. But uh, I was on a, uh, on a site just the other day that I didn't know about. already mentioned that I'm in a, uh, in the, on the job market myself right now, kind of in between full-time gigs. But I found a, uh, a site called NC Serves, and I connected to that through USO of North Carolina. Uh, as opposed to the national USO uh, or whatever some states are like that, but so North Carolina has their own their own USO. Connected with the great folks there, pointed me towards NC Serves, and you go to this website and it's got all this stuff, right? Uh, you just click on the link and it, and it's I think there's about, there's probably 25 links on there, so it's the employment stuff and that's easy, but you know there's some medical stuff, some housing stuff, and I don't even know what all's on there. But uh, since I'm in the Raleigh area. I go to uh, NC, Google up NC Serves and Raleigh Durham. It takes you right there. And there's just a ton of resources. So I'd be, uh, as time goes on here, I'd certainly be willing for somebody like the people who run NC Serves, come on the podcast, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and how to connect and how 
how they can get their services out and serve their constituency. So if you know of resources like that, please send me a, a note and we'll get them here. If there's stuff that you need yourself, things that you need support in, uh, you're, you're a veteran or you have family members of veterans, or if there's things that you need, send me a note at danthegarrisonproject.com and say, I need, I'm looking for this. Are there any resources that are out there between this podcast where we can talk about them and the social media presence that we'll start to build over time. But at the very least, our, our LinkedIn accounts and our Facebook accounts and all that kind of stuff through those, we can connect to all these, you know, eight bajillion uh, veteran support organizations out there and see what we can do uh, as a group. So it reminds me, there's a uh, there's a Facebook group that that I belong to called uh, Navy Nuke Job Finder, and uh, join this join this Facebook uh, group, and it's about the most proactive group of people I've ever seen in my life. All of them centered around Navy nukes, just because hey, everybody's got their community, right? But truly, one of the most aggressive job finding groups I've ever ever seen. I think they have about eight thousand people or so, and just. If, if you're on this group, that's all you see is updates with, hey, a job here, a job here. Has anybody tried, been? has anybody applied to such and such a company? Or I just left such and such a company. If you need any contacts, go there. Super aggressive. And I really want to model that that flavor here to, uh, to the Garrison Project. It's about veterans connecting and supporting one another. Again, we have some great stuff coming down the pike, but really the basics, uh, basics are all about that, the connection between veterans. So wrap that all up resources if you need something if you if you're unable to find something and need some help finding something if you want to put out some information i'd be glad to have you dial in uh, during one of the recordings and we can get uh, you on the show and talk about what services you need if you're using some resources that are particularly effective please recommend that they come on here and put out uh, the word about what they do and also if you have some uh, if you know some companies out there that might be interested in uh, getting some some advertising uh, space that's not going to break the bank. We're certainly at the the beginning of what we'll do here with the the Garrison Project podcast, and I'd love to talk to them as well. All that being said, that's really the uh, the wrap up for for today's show. Uh, look forward to our next interview. Just about ready to uh, to get that done. Uh, we're recording here on Thursday night, the second uh, of August. So I should have this out sometime sometime tomorrow and uh, looking forward to uh, continuing the conversation. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to the Garrison Project podcast with Dan Edinger. Veterans connecting with veterans across generations through the power of storytelling. Look for us on the web and social media and please share this podcast with your friends and family. Thanks for the support. Like us whenever you listen to our podcast and stay tuned for more episodes.